Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The B-Side. It's a podcast for the film stage website. We talk about movie stars and sometimes movie directors and sometimes people who are both and not the movies that made them famous or kept them famous, but the weird play adaptations that they made in between (laughs) of Oscar Wilde plays that nobody has thought about for a hundred years. My name is Dan Mecca, and I'm talking as usual with my podcast producer and good friend, best man at my wedding, Connor O'Donnell. What's up, man? Hey, man. Hey, man. Um, So what we're really going to dig into today is how the LAPD lost Neil McCauley after Vincent Hanna had coffee with them half an hour ago. (laughs) And because that's all I can think about when we were doing what we're actually doing, which is watching the directorial efforts of Robert De Niro and Al Pacino with the Susson of the musical career of Joe Pesci. What do these three people have in common? Well, they're all a little Italian at the very least. Oh, just a little. Just a little. And they all... They are all in a movie called The Irishman, which has been getting a bit of press recently and is currently out in select theaters, I think just on the coasts. If you're listening, it's probably actually more available um, or now if you're listening. But I think as we're recording, it's only New York and L.A. And one of us has seen it. And that is you, Connor. Yes. What did you think of The Irishman? I I really I really loved it. I was. uh, Yeah, I, I was very. You know, I think like a lot of people just, you know, in the long story of this movie getting made, especially once they mentioned the digital de-aging and stuff, very skeptical. Like I I was just in my head, I was like, I can't wait for this movie to just be a like Heaven's Gate-esque disaster, you know, like. Yeah, famously, uh, famously, here we go. It begins early. Um, uh, so a fan on Twitter called me out for saying famously, but I guess in this case, I don't think I'm wrong. Pretty famously, the budget for The Irishman ballooned as they kept filming it. Um, Netflix obviously was kept saying yes to those overages, and they did finish the movie. But to your point, there was a moment, I think, before this movie. Obviously, now it's coming out and getting great notices. I think there was a moment where, you know, will this be Marty's, you know, Waterloo or something like that. Um, and it does not seem like that's going to be the case. No, so, no. You, it's, I yeah. mean, it's, you know, I don't know. I don't want to like use the word masterpiece because I just saw the movie yesterday, you know, as of, as of this recording. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, it feels like that kind of thing. Do you know what I Like, I don't know. Like, it's, it's like a statement movie, a movie like, you know, I like, I have not seen it, but from what you're saying and what I've read, it, it, it people are regarding it as kind of a, a treaty son. You know the gangster movies that Marty has made his name on, like a yeah, criticism it's a, of them, it's and a, also it's a, like a very self-reflexive movie, right? Um, just in a like in a lot of different ways, not just with Martin Scorsese, but obviously everybody involved, and um, yeah, it's like they could all stop making movies tomorrow, um, and I mean obviously in like in Joe Pesci's case. He already basically has. He came out of retirement uh, for this movie. Yeah, he had only made – he was in a cameo in The Good Shepherd uh, in 07, and then he had a lead role in the in Love Ranch in 2010, uh, were the only two even moderately recent. Um, I think he's in a, like a Doritos commercial or a Snickers commercial or something. Like he's not yeah. around a lot. Yeah. 
Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, they could all stop making movies tomorrow and this would be a perfectly, like, yeah. like perfectly good, like, Hey, like good job guys, like a great, uh, swan song, if you will. But is it better than De Niro and Scorsese's collaboration in the B-side movie Shark Tale? No, certainly not. No. Okay. Well, yeah, that's good. To like know. Shark, t- I mean, Shark Tale's peak Scorsese. We all know that. I think we can all agree. I mean, I don't, you're not saying anything that's, uh, you know, that we don't already know. Um, so, well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I am obviously a little jealous. Hopefully. Yeah. I'm hesitant um, to talk about it because I don't want to like soon. oversell it and I don't want to. Well, no, but, I mean, you know, so it's based, I mean, I think we might've mentioned this on the podcast before, or just, you know, obviously if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably aware of it. I mean, it's based on the book, I Heard You Paint Houses about the life of Frank uh, Sheeran, who claimed to be the hitman who killed Jimmy Hoffa, right? In the movie, Jimmy Hoffa is played by Al Pacino. And I believe Joe Pesci plays rough Russell Buffalino, Buffalino right? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's about, you know, the book in the movie, as I understand it, it's basically kind of about the dark side of American, you know, politics and union work and you know that world of it all connects and how it connects and you know and so it even um, overlaps quite significantly with good shepherd uh yeah with good shepherd and yeah i was thinking about that um you know just reading re-watching the good shepherd and reading about uh, the irishman i was thinking about that it's yeah there um there's even mention of a character or a, a real person in the irishman that joe pesci's cameo in the good shepherd is supposed to be so it's kind of you could almost like the mob boss yeah yeah he he was he was i uh his name escapes me at this point but he well in the good shepherd it's not the same name right no no good Good shepherd basically we'll talk about it when we get to it but that movie basically fictionalizes like everybody's name but like all of them are there's some direct on I don't, like the Edward Wilson character. I don't know if there's a direct person. That, I think that's it's an amalgamation. Ed, Ed, Ed like, Wynn Wilson is like the big one. This guy named Edwin Wilson. But oh, really? Yeah. OK, because I know I know the Billy Crudup character, Arch Cummings in the movie is directly is is based directly on that one British spy who basically was like a triple agent, mm-hmm. essentially. And he ended up kind of. uh uh, seeking asylum in Russia, which happens in the movie as well. Anyway, so you can obviously tell one of the movies we're going to talk about is The Good Shepherd. So um, like we said before, De Niro and Pacino has bo- have both directed a few things over their uh, illustrious careers. Uh, very different. Uh, very, very different. And we'll get into it um, in terms of kind of the types of things they've directed. But we're going to go chronologically. So we're going to do... We're going to start in 1993 with A Bronx Tale, which uh, is uh, De Niro's first movie, which is based on Chaz Palminteri's play, which had, you know, was uh, kind of big in New York. And then obviously he wrote the script, uh, Palminteri wrote the screenplay of the movie that De Niro uh, directed and starred in. And Palminteri is in the movie as he was in the play playing Sonny, who's the kind of main uh, mobster in the Bronx, the area of the Bronx in which they live. And De Niro plays the father of the main character, Clojido, who uh, De Niro's character is like a working man bus driver. And the movie's basically about this, you know, De Niro's sons basically kind of falling in love with the Sonny character and what he represents, at least what the son believes he represents in the neighborhood. And, you know, butting heads with his father, who's, you know, working for a living and, you know, 
doesn't have you know they're trying to yeah you know, as a working man is is, a, is an honest you know the only honest man on the block basically kind of thing and and actually pesci has a has a cameo on that yeah um, at the at the very end it's kind of interesting. Uh, it's funny there are two one scene cameos in both of the de niro directed movies and they're very good scenes here's the thing real quick uh, and this is like the last thing i'll say about the irishman probably until we get to the end but like pesci's amazing in the movie and it really does like it make you remember like what a what a treasure joe pesci is as, well i mean as an he's actor. one of those yeah i mean it's interesting he's one of those people you know and this happens kind of gets i don't know i mean he's obviously remembered so he's he's remembered well and he's not dead you know but he doesn't work a lot like we said and but weirdly, yeah, it's he's like weirdly underrated. He didn't really make a lot of movies, you know, like even when I, he was making I, I movies. I think it's also because like in the height of his fame, he was going I think part of it's that he was going really broad and maybe just I guess, didn't, but even I, I guess like when you talk about the lethal weapon and home movies, alone and you know, yeah, like, right, home alone. But, home but alone, of course. But, you know, I think, it, but I mean, like my cousin Vinny, for example, is a very broad performance. But yes, I mean, he won an Oscar for not for my cousin Vinny, I guess, but he won, he won for, for Goodfellas. Good he yeah. won for Goodfellas, yeah. but but my cousin Vinny, it's such a great performance. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like as broad as it is, he was was he know, nominated and, for my cousin Vinny? Um, we can check. I don't. I don't know. I mean, obviously, Tomei won for my cousin Vinny, but um, and if you don't know this. Pesci, and I, I was going to say famously, and I didn't. I just want to let the record show. I thought about saying it famously, <laughs> and I said, if you don't know this, um, Pesci has one of the greatest Oscar win speeches ever, um, which she was the Connor, only one nominated, may, by may, the way. Maybe Connor can put this clip of him here. The Oscar goes to Joe Pesci in Goodfellas. It's my privilege, thank you. It's a beautifully succinct uh, moment. Yeah, it's great. And but yeah, so I guess with Pesci, you know, I guess, I guess in the culture, you have the Lethal Weapon movies where he's Leo Getz, and you have the two Home Alone movies where he's Marv, right? Or was he Marv or Harry? He's one of them. He's Harry. Harry. Yeah. So. Um, isn't he Harry Lime? Isn't that his oh, name? Maybe. I, I think it's like a Hughes reference to the third man. Um, <laughs> or like, or it's like close to it or something. I'm going to look it up. Anyway, he's a great actor. He deserves, you know, any accolade he gets. He, but he's never, with, I mean, if he had directed literally anything, we'd be, we, he, he would be one of our B-sides in this episode. But alas. Yeah, he, he did. He did not. Yeah. He was not a big kind of actor first guy. Um. Yeah, IMDb doesn't say, so maybe I'm making it up. I don't know. Um, about the Home Alone thing. So the movies we're doing, a Bronx Tale first movie we're gonna do, came out in 1993, cost 10 million, made 17, you know, so a small debut, but is remembered pretty well, I think, in the world of film fans. Then in 96, Pacino makes his director directorial debut with uh, a documentary called, well, it's kind of a half documentary, half narrative, I guess. 
Um, it's called Looking for Richard. It was a Sundance movie, and it's essentially Pacino exploring the text of Shakespeare's play Richard the Third, while he uh, be- like de- develops his own adaptation of the play with a bunch of his famous, you know, theater acting friends, including like Harris Ulin. Alec Baldwin, Kevin Spacey, uh, F. Murray Abraham shows up. You know what I mean? Um, I think he, um, he made, it, Geraldine he made Harris, it like over the course of who, a few years. And you can see that yeah. he's like just re- recruiting people that he's kind of like crossing yeah, paths and, with. It feels like. And ultimately, the movie more than anything, more, more than anything, the movie is essentially, you know, Pacino just exploring Shakespeare in general. Yeah. And like the way he wrote and, you know. You know, there's a whole thing about how Americans perform Shakespeare and how there's like a lot of Americans feel there's such a reverence for the text. They don't actually perform it with like the the right emotionality. It's kind of interesting. There's like a bit. F. Murray, F. Murray Abraham has a great little bit in the middle of it where he's basically talking about that exact thing. And like Brana talks about it, too. It's very it's interesting. It's like I think Derek Jacoby has a bit about it where they're like, you know, the Americans the thing that about their acting that's so great is is there is the um is the bravery and they just they go for it and they and then but then when they do shakespeare it's very reserved because it's like they don't want to fuck with the words and and jacoby's basically like that's a mistake which i think is interesting cuz you can tell pacino is kind of wrestling with that himself in the movie. Yeah. And I'll say this. I had seen the movie before, rewatching it. I liked it more, actually, this movie, Looking for Richard. I certainly think it's the best thing to date uh, that Pacino's made as a director. Because it feels very... I mean, and we'll get into it. What I like about Pacino is he's like a nerd. He's like a theater yes. nerd. And, yeah. And he's, he's, and when he's, he's super and, fascinating, dude. Like, and when he's in his... Yeah. And when he's like in it, you know, getting nerdy, it's kind of fun. So that's the second movie. Uh, in 2000, though it never really came out um, in theaters, um, uh, Pacino makes Chinese Coffee, which is based on a play that he was in in 1992, written by Ira Lewis, who has since passed away. He died in two, uh, 2015. Ira Lewis is actually in Looking for Richard as well. Anyway, um, so Chinese Coffee was a play in 92, premiered in New York, and uh, Pacino made it into a movie starring himself in the same role and Jerry Orbach, who you know from uh, he's the dad in Dirty Dancing and he's also obviously in Law and Order. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and he's in that. And that came out in 2000, kind of. It didn't really come out. It premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival, you know, with like an obviously an intro from De Niro and Pacino allowed it to be released in this box set called an at, uh, Pacino and Actors Vision, which included Looking for Richard and The Local Stigmatic, which was this small movie from 1990 that was also based on a play. If you if you'd like so, to watch it, I mean, you can uh, you can find it pretty easily on YouTube. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty available, but not you know you can still get that box set. I think it, but I think it, even the box set it might be like expensive on Amazon, to be honest. So yeah, you can find it on YouTube by uh, or Chinese Coffee at least. And then in 07... Uh, there's the Good Shepherd, which is certainly the biggest of the movies we're going to be talking about. Yeah, definitely. Um, cost 110 million, made about 100. Definitely lost money for Universal Pictures. Um, was long in development. A lot of different directors were attached. Eric Roth. We'll we'll talk about it. A cool thing about that movie: Eric Roth was always the screenwriter. Oh, really? He kind of 
Yeah, he he. I think from '94 on, he was developing another thing, but he's credited. Um, he's credited, and I, I think just kind of was always with the project, which I think is kind of cool. Um, I mean, sure there might have been other writers, maybe, but it's just cool that he saw it through. And then finally in two in 2011, but then they came out later, similar to Chinese Coffee, kind of barely. Wild Salome and Salome, which is kind of their companion pieces, Pacino directed, which explores Wild Salome is kind of like looking for Richard, where it's basically um, Pacino is directing an adaptation of the Oscar Wilde play Salome for an L.A. theater. And it's about the process of researching Oscar Wilde and the play itself and the text. And then Salome is basically they film the play as a movie and essentially does the play ever come out? i guess the play did come out they did yeah, it, perform well, it, the play it in was LA like a kindness. yeah it was like a it was like a reading it wasn't like a staged play yeah. um they sort of talk we'll get to it but they talk about it, it that in wild yeah, the two, a little bit in terms yeah of like the two movies kind of are kind of an archive of a failure, right? Basically like Pacino's kind of is in over his head almost. And the movies become about that <laughs> kind of that movie compared to looking for Richard feels like even more of a vanity project, but to Pacino's credit still does feel pretty transparent and honest. Um, oh yeah. Because it's not like he's trying to cover up the fact that like, like, I mean, I don't want to spoil it, but like, Salome sucks. Like it's not good. So like like the movie, right? So well, it's barely. Yeah, it's it's not much of anything. Yeah, really. so that's it's, I think so part the, of the and deal. it's it's kind of to your point. It feels like Pacino's slowly realizing as he's like dealing with this obsession uh, that that he's that he's in over his head kind of thing. But um, but yeah, we'll get yeah. we'll get to it. Um. So anyway, that's what we're talking about. These six movies. Um, in total, we'll probably we'll probably take a more general approach just because there are more movies and you know of, of varying degrees of kind of you know success and like we're saying, not a lot of people have seen most of the Pacino ones, um, though they're interesting and I think it's cool that we're including them. So a Bronx Tale, we'll start there. Um, it is a, a movie about like kind of already talked about it. It's based on that the play by Paul Mattieri and um, it's. A pretty, you know, I, I think if you're going to say to yourself, what's the movie that De Niro makes, right, as a director, and and then you show someone a Bronx still, they're like, yeah, that feels like yeah, exactly yeah. what he'd make. You know, because... Especially a first movie. Like... Yeah, and De Niro is one of these people, you know, he's a New Yorker forever. His dad was kind of a failed artist in a lot of respects. He's a... I think he's a, he's a tough nut to crack in terms of his interviews, but when you get him going, he is a very kind of soft soul, I think you would say. Mm -hmm. You know, him and Pacino both in some degrees. And I think A Bronx Tale is exemplary of that. You know, it's it's a movie made by a guy who loves New York and all of its warts, right? Warts and all type of thing. Um, so basically, I mean, I don't think we need to spoil any of these movies. You know, if you want to watch them, they're out there for you. Um, this movie was released by Sa uh, Savoy Pictures in 93, like we said. 
didn't really make much money, but has aged pretty well in terms of kind of its remembrance. It's not really a B-side, probably. This is like the least of, of the B-sides of, 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 of the movies we're yeah, talking about Yeah, I feel like today. it's generally, like, I, I think it's a movie that like, a lot of people, whether it, I, I also recall it being on TV a lot, like when we were younger, yeah. Dan. Yeah. And I just feel yeah. like, you know, this is almost one of those movies. And I don't even mean this in a bad way. But if you like were to ask somebody who doesn't even watch a ton of movies, what one of their favorite like movies is, this might be on that list. You know what I mean? Like, it's just because it's like a very, oh, like, yeah. it's well, like a very look, watchable, accessible movie. Um, oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm from, you know, I'm, I'm half Italian, half Irish. So I'm from, you know, my Italian side of my family is, is much bigger than my Irish side. Um, and my dad, uh, works, uh, as an electrician for a very long time. He still works kind of in a different capacity, but you know, a lot of Italians are in that business as well. So it's kind of this thing of, you know, it was a, that movie, Bronx has always been a part of my life, even from a family sense. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's been well watched by many people who I love. Do you know what I mean? And you're right. I've, de I've definitely talked to more than a few people who, you know, are only maybe, you know, one of these, one of most people who are maybe only seeing one movie a year in theaters, you know? So if you're, right. you're like, Hey, what movie do you love? A Bronx tale is a common answer, at least for the people and kind of in my immediate purview. Um, and I had, I have a very soft spot for it. I mean, I think it's a lovely little movie. Uh, there's a lot of things in it, um, that you could certainly criticize. Um, you know, in particular, the lead performance by the guy who plays the adults or young adults Collagido. Um, it's kind of a, it's an ebby flowy performance, you know, it's given by a young actor. There are moments that work and moments that don't, um, the ensemble is the reason to watch it, you know, yeah. Paul Materi and De Niro being kind of the main attractions. Um, and that, I mean, the, the, the process of like getting it to the screen was, was really, really sold through on, on, uh, on or or not sold through right on Chaz Palminteri playing Sonny um that was like a big part of it when he because he was getting offers from like all over um uh people who were you know just throwing very large figures for someone you know like him at the time who like he didn't have a lot of money in the bank and people were throwing him these figures to like adapt the movie and he was like cool but I want to play Sonny and I want to write the screenplay and he he talks about it, you know, not with like uh, disdain or anything like that. He, you know, he's like, I understand it's it's a business and whatnot, but these people, you know, they were they were gonna basically buy the rights to make the movie and then go to Robert De Niro, right, or Al Pacino, right, to like, yeah. to to play Sonny. And uh, one day after one of the performances, it was a one man it was a one man show that he was doing. And one day after one of the performances, someone mentioned to him like, "Hey, Robert De Niro's in your dressing room." And so he goes and he's right. talking and he's talking to De Niro about it. And it seems to me like uh, you know, and I I was having a hard time finding De Niro's take on like making a Bronx Tale and like what it sort of took to make it happen and and why specifically he wanted to do it. Um, as you mentioned, he's kind of a tough nut to crack with some of that stuff, but, um, yeah. And he's one of those guys. I mean, you can ask in, inter in interviews, he'll, he'll be asked questions that are meant to kind of dig into his thinking on things. And he'll be like, Oh, I thought it was, you know, good play. Yeah. Right. Right. You know, like exactly. Kind of, exactly. And maybe that's know, just what it guys. is. Like it, by, by all accounts, it seems like he was just angling to direct something. 
uh, and and felt like this was sort of the uh, the right thing. But basically, he made sort of just a handshake deal with Chaz Palminteri that like, look, we know that like they're going to go to somebody like me once they want to try and make this movie anyway. So why don't you star in it? You write it. I'll direct it. I'll star in it. And we'll we'll like 50 50 partner it basically. And that's what they did. Um, right. And it, I mean, it basically works like to your point that like the ensemble is the thing of the movie, like their two performances, I feel like are the thing of the movie. Um, yeah, I think, I think the lead performance, it's a weird thing. And I don't want to, I don't want to harp on this again. Cause I bring it up a lot, but like, I do think the voiceover like destroys this movie. Um, I think, yeah. I think it's, I think it's, all it's indicative and i haven't i have never seen the one man show so i'm sure a bunch of it came from the screenplay i'm sure a bunch of that was there but it definitely i think just a more seasoned director probably would have realized like oh you don't really need this because there are a lot of moments where things happen and then they uh you know, they call him c in the movie that's like his nickname right, and the right, adult right. c who narrates the film basically reiterates what just happened and his feelings on it like immediately after they happen. So you're not really given like time to, I, I don't know, to like really like analyze or, or take in the movie um, just on like a pure character level. It's very like kind of hits you over the head a little bit. That said, I, I mean the movie, I haven't watched it. Lilo Brancato Jr. By the way. Oh collage yeah. Room. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. He, I mean, his on-screen performance, I think, is pretty good. His voiceover narration, though, I think is is tough. Was tough for me on the rewatch. Like, I remember kind of watching this movie, kind of at the same time that I watched Goodfellas and watched, you know. So, I guess to this movie's credit, it was, you know, it was placed in good company in terms of like, you know, me diving into all the gangster movies and and that kind of stuff. Um, but I. And and I had a, I have a fondness for it uh, for sure, and it definitely is effective as a general like um, like aesthetic mood piece. I think it's like super evocative of like you know nineteen fifties nineteen sixties. Like that definitely comes across. Fun fact: uh, I don't know if it I don't know if none of it, but I know very little of it was shot in the Bronx. Most of it was shot in Astoria and Jackson Heights. Yes, and actually, Connor, we work with somebody in New York who worked on that very movie and had yeah. a couple of pretty interesting stories about, uh, particularly the funeral scene, right? The yeah, uh, the yeah. Bond company, and anyway, pretty interesting kind of inside production stuff. Yeah, but, um, yeah. There was there's a there is a a funeral at the end of the movie. Um, yeah, with with many many flowers, and uh, this person that Dan and I know w- was working on the film. And for whatever reason, they uh, was it De Niro's request. I don't want to really get it wrong, but generally speaking, there was a request to have real flowers. Yeah, they ordered a bunch of flowers and then they went long in the filming and all the flowers died and they still had to they still had coverage to film, but the flowers could no longer be used and the week was over. And essentially, they needed to rebuy thousands of dollars worth of flowers at a location that they no longer, you know, it was kind of like they had to stay in a location and get all these flowers, which is just all, you know, on a production, there's a schedule and a budget and what have you. And, you know, line producer kind of monitoring all that. And basically they went over 
And it became a thing where, you know, when you make a movie, you take out a bond as part of insurance, depending on the, the size of your movie and whatnot. And essentially, the number got called and they were like, hey, we got to come in and basically make this stuff, then make this happen. This is someone hopefully we'll have on the podcast at some point. Um, we've worked with him over the years. So um, he can tell it fully and properly if he wants yeah, to. Yeah, I don't want to call him out by name until on, we can confirm that. <laughs> yeah, it's a movie they made kind of, you know, like Connor said, uh, here and there in New York. Um, and I think, you know, so I've talked to people about it. My dad, who I mentioned before, he's worked, you know, uh, in the electrical union for a long time. And there's a lot of Italians, you know, who came up in a world at different ages in this similar type of a world. And, you know, in, in when the mafia was more prevalent um, than it is nowadays. And the complaint that my dad had always told me that he heard from friends of his that, he, you know, people he worked with that were maybe a little bit more Italian in terms of their familiarity with the mafia side of things was that. In their experience, there would never be a mobster like Sonny who was so singular in his control of an area. Like they basically were like, you know, in the movie, Sonny is the end all be all, right? Like he is the god of, you know, that section of town, like those blocks where the movie takes place. And, um, And I guess I think they also said, you know, in the movie, C begins a relationship with a African American a uh, young woman from like the other side of town and they're treated with some obviously animosity because of racial relations. I think the other, the other criticism of the movie is that it would be way worse <laughs> than the movie. Yeah, portrays and, it. And, and that's, like, you know, which is crazy to say life, because which the is movie, sad, but I mean, some crazy shit happens in the movie. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. No, yeah. but I think, I mean, but those are, but you know, those are complaints that are, you know, for the wider viewing public don't matter. You know what I mean? I think, you know, as a movie and a piece of entertainment, it works well enough. Especially think, when you compare it, I think to like, you know, other gangster movies right like how how well it relates to maybe the actual you know the actual mob in new york you know who knows um, and who and who cares right right i I think what i like about the movie the most is it's like it's really narrow lens and it's really narrow scope um you know basically c grows up you know with you know his parents in this building that's that's a stone's a literal stone's throw away from this bar that Sonny basically runs a lot of operations out of. And I love how um I love how vague the movie is in that regard. Like you don't get the idea of exactly who Sonny is, what his exact role is in all of these operations. And over the years, you don't even get necessarily exactly what his rise to power means, you know? Um, but, uh, but, but it's all through the lens of this kid, you know, so you're only really getting from a plot and story standpoint, just what, what, you know, would actually be garnered from the kid who's like observing him, you know what I mean? Um, which I think and, is kind of nice and kind of interesting. And, and you're also, you know, what I like is this is a 93 once again. So you're getting a performance from De Niro, a wholly supporting performance as the f- a father of C, who is a bus driver around town. His name is Lorenzo. Lorenzo. And um, Lorenzo Anello. And um, I think, you know, he's obviously become softer over time, De Niro, right? When he got into comedy and, you know, started making things like, you know, everybody's fine and, you know, movies like that. Yeah. But I think 
in 93, he had just made Cape Fear, right? So he's still kind of more intense De Niro, you know, and yeah, like softer sure. performances are in things that not a lot of people see, right? So like a great De Niro B-side that one day we should talk about is he made a movie in the late 80s, early 90s called Jackknife, which is this like lovely little movie where he plays this Vietnam vet. Um, and I believe it's like he he starts dating his vet, his like other veteran friend's sister or something. And it's like, and just tension inherent, but it's like a very small movie and it's a lovely little performance. But once again, nobody really sees it. I think to this point, De Niro is way more known for Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, you know, um, even 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 Goodfellas. You know, he is the you know, he's Jimmy Conway, who's like the kind of smoother, calmer Irish uh, mobster. But he's still, you know, vicious in his own way, of course. So this is a departure and I love, you know, and even rewatching, and I've seen this movie a million times, I really love his scenes a lot. Like his scenes with the little boy who plays young um, Claudio. I mean, they're so nice. I want you to listen to me. Hey, do not go near the bar. Stay on the stoop, but keep away from the bar. When you're older, you'll understand why. Yes. You don't see me go near that bar, do you? Mommy won't let you go there either. What am I gonna do with this kid? Hey, I don't know. I got him all day. I'm just kidding. I won't go near the bar. Look what I got. Two tickets, Yankee Stadium, center field. Behind the mic? Right behind number seven. Now eat your steak. Yeah. I love those exchanges. They feel, you know, it makes me long for a New York I don't, I never knew. Right. You know what I and mean? And maybe, which, frankly, which, who knows? Maybe it didn't exist, right? But like, but oh, like, sure, but sure. The New it, York it's as nostalgia it's told to you, as a yeah. movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah for no, sure. 100%. Yeah. And, and I think, I, I think this movie's great about that. I think what one of the things I love about, uh, about De Niro's performance, to your point, is how he uses it to undermine sort of everything he's become famous for up to date, right? And, and, and really takes the opportunity to, I mean, there are scenes in the movie where, you know, the kid will do something wrong. Young uh, Collateral will do something wrong or, you know, and I won't get into specifics. But or disobey their yeah, parents, yeah, yeah. whatever. And you, and, you know, your conventional movie wisdom in what you know, you know, just in movies at the time and movies that usually take this lens and De Niro, you think he's going to like beat the shit out of him or yeah, like, you know what I mean? And yeah, instead yeah. he, he just comes in with sort of an even handed, like stern, but like, and it's, it's really, it's a really good, even keel performance that, and we've talked about it before on the show that like, I love those performances. Like when people just play normal people, because it's like, probably one of the oh, hardest things to do i think for an actor and i think if you so can, underrated if you can do yeah. it well and pull it off and he does it here he i mean you mentioned everybody's fine he, he, you know he does it in a movie like that like looking at his filmography he does it a couple years before this in a movie that's really good uh called mad dog and glory yes yeah i was actually which, gonna, i was gonna bring that up yeah but which is where bill murray basically does the role that de niro would normally do and de niro and does, de niro the, niro role does the role you would think maybe bill murray would do it's like a little bit more mild-mannered with a little eccentricity type deal yeah um and young uma thurman is kind of the woman in the middle we'll, it's we'll directed by john that. we'll cover that movie on a b-side that's a great movie that's a john mcnaughton movie um who's a pretty underrated uh director he also did wild things anyway um yeah i mean we don't need to say much more about a bronx tale you know like i said it's probably the most well kind of seen of the ones we're gonna do sure um 
But I would be remiss if I did not mention before we moved on that in rewatching it, I was reminded that I love the performance of Catherine Narducci, who's uh, who plays uh, De Niro's wife. Oh, she's great, dude. She's so she's great. so great. I, no, there's she, so many moments that like yeah, she's you know, really like, great. I, where like you know, their son will come home with you know. A, a you know a stack of cash that that Chaz Palminteri gave him right yeah and you know De Niro's character being De Niro's character is like no we got to give it back like whatever and she's just like well maybe we don't like you know you could you know yeah you know, like you could tell it's tell him it's wrong but maybe uh, I don't know maybe it's we like keep the money bucks. Yeah. it's a lot of money and it's so you're kind of like yeah, yeah. like I and I, I think the kid Francis Capra who plays the young Calagero is actually really good too well the work of Maze is sucker <laughs> work of Maze is sucker. Um, yeah, I mean, look, the truth is this is a father-son, father-son movie. Father and son movies go a long way with me. Um, like probably like a lot of, like a lot of men, you know, sure. you know, give me a father, you give me a son, you give me conflict, you give me resolution. I'm going to cry. There, I'm going to cry. And, 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 uh, you know, we'll, we'll get to it, but Good Shepherd is basically the same, uh, the same kind of movie. There's a lot of uh, it. Except way fucking sad or yeah um, oh, but God, before we shepherd. before we get to that anything anything else to say before we uh, move on from no Tale? no see you bronx Tale. well, well um, so we're gonna take a quick break we're just gonna do a quick uh joe pesci musical interlude right oh hell here. yeah every time i get the urge to visit my hometown i'm sure that all my cousins will try to track me down my heart says go my head says no it's best to stay away but if I appear, I'm sure to hear all those jerk-offs say Hey, Cousin Vinny, your Cousin Vinny Is there anything that you could do for me? Hey, Cousin Vinny, your Cousin Vinny It ain't that long you must remember me Okay, and now You're that, welcome, America Yeah, yeah, now that Joe has given us that uh, We're gonna we're gonna pop over to, to uh, Pacino so, have you had you seen Looking for Richard Connor before I, this podcast? I had, I had not. I had actually never seen any a Pacino of directed. Pacino's movies. Uh, well, then not, you, not movies gonna, that he then, was in, but uh, di- di- you know, directed efforts. Yeah, talk talk. Then tell tell the world about this movie. Yeah, I'm so, curious. So I've seen look, this a couple of times. So, Looking for Richard um, is basically, as we sort of mentioned at the top a little bit, it's basically. Pacino, uh, and he made it over the course of a few few years. It came out in '96, I believe, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And he made it over the course of a few years. It's a do- it's a documentary, but it is sort of a half narrative because it essentially it's him just walking through the play Richard III, the Shakespeare play, and kind of breaking it down in terms of why it's sort of a difficult play, why it's one of the ones people kind of forget about. Um, and, and I, to my knowledge, he basically wanted to do an adaptation of Richard the third and essentially couldn't. Right. And it, I, the reason I think that's a fascinating bit of information is just cause like, I think that's sort of what informs all of Pacino's directed efforts basically is like, Oh yeah. He is like that's him, exactly him, what it is. him trying to crack the nut of, of directing a movie and sort of, maybe not fully committing to it or 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 maybe just hedging his bets sort of against it frankly because both times he tried to do it outside of chinese coffee which as we mentioned he sort of tried to hide from the world for like a little bit um 
but but between uh you know richard iii and salome rather than just making straight up adaptations he like covered his process of doing that and then sort of made that the narrative right and it's totally it's uh you know as we were you know you and i were talking off mic about it dan but you know it's they're looking for richard's an extremely academic movie and um that doesn't necessarily mean it's not good. Like, I don't know how technically proficient as a documentary it is. It's definitely got like some wonky things going on. Um, but yeah, I, mean, but I was, all, like I was always theater. engaged. I was thoroughly yeah, engaged. It the feels whole time. like a third, you know, a prime theater school. It's a Friday. Let's put on looking yes. for Richard. No, a th- dude, a thousand percent. Or like even- and that's not, and that's not a, like you're saying, I, I like this movie a lot. Yeah, this that is not a diss. No, it's, no, no. It's, it, it's just very. It's, but it's very. You're right. It's very academic. And look, all four of his directed movies are like that. Even Chinese Coffee, the play that the the play that they're adapting, the tenets of the play, and this is the next movie we'll talk about, right? The tenets of that play is being. What does it mean to be creative? And you know, what are the right compromises to make? And you know. If you're poor for 30 years trying to write, does that, you know, does, does that sacrifice give you the excuse to be a dickhead about it, essentially? Right. I mean, kind it's, of, it's yeah. a pretty, it's a, so even his straight fiction, you know, n- not based on anything like, you know, Salome in obviously Salome and Looking for Richard have, you know, fictional quote unquote elements. His one true like adaptation without a companion piece, if you will, is essentially, you know, an examination in itself of the writing process. So it's, he's a, he's it a super interesting. They're all dude. of a piece. Like, yeah. They're all of a, of a piece, which is, you know, Pacino more than De Niro as a director seems more interested in the process of creating, Yeah, you know, whereas De Niro, you know, you know, is making entertainment, you know, you know, which once again, do not, that is not meant to be derivative, right? I mean, it's 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 a it's a designation more than anything. I mean, I, I, De Niro is making movies for people, as many people as possible to watch. Yeah, and Pacino seems to be making movies truly for himself, right? Yeah, that which which again, if a few people see it, that's great. Isn't I mean, like, you would be in, entirely with your within your rights and largely correct to call looking for Richard a, a vanity project, right? But I just I, what I don't like I, Vanity Project, but it has this but that weird connotation that's negative. Yeah, I don't, it is kind I just of don't point. love the negative connotation of Vanity Project. Sure, I sure, feel like sure. there's so many Vanity but Projects that, that are. That's kind of my point. Good, is it but, is yeah. it is by I think it is and Sal you know Wild Salome as well. But looking for Richard is I feel like the definition of a Vanity Project, but in my mind, like without the connotation of one, because like it is very much. Um, I, you know, I, I think Pacino's aware of it. That's sort of also part of it, right? Like, you know, as we know, vanity is definitely his favorite sin. So, oh. you know, oh. <laughs> so <laughs> that was perfect. Oh my God. How did I not think of that? I think we got to stop the podcast. <laughs> I think this has to be our last uh, thing. It's not going to get better than that. Vanity. Definitely my favorite, favorite sin. sin. Um, anyway, I will um, let me quickly say, um, hmm. because I thought of this while rewatching Looking for Richard, kind of an interesting thing. Only the year before in 95, um, Richard Loncrane had made a pretty interesting adaptation of Richard the Third called Richard the Third, starring 
Ian McKellen, Annette Benning, Robert Downey Jr., among others. I think uh, younger Christian Bale's in it as well, which is an adaptation of the play, but it's set in 1930s Britain. So Richard is a fascist trying to usurp the British throne. So yep. it's a Nazi thing, so, and, which is cool. And, and it's worth watching. I mean, that one's worth watching because M- I also... McKellen, who loves playing Nazis. <laughs> I feel like Apple. we're going to find out that he like was one. Oh, my God. I, that would be sad. I'm still mean, not like, saying yes. that I actually think that he is. But it's just like he's done it so many times that like I just feel like there's going to be some sort of posthumous dirt that's dug up about him or something. I always love the joke. Steve Martin made whatever Oscars he hosted with Alec Baldwin, where he's like, anybody who works with Meryl Streep always says the same two things. What an amazing actress and what's up with all the Hitler paraphernalia. <laughs> I'm a pretty basic guy. I think we've established yeah. Dan McCord. Yep, yep. Uh, pretty basic. But you yeah, know what? But, um, I wear it like a badge. Speaking of, uh, speaking of Ian McKellen and uh, he, he was, a, he, he was in a movie about Nazis directed by Michael Mann, who directed a part of Looking for Richard. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Is that true? So Michael Mann, uh, now that I've brought us back, there is a uh, there is a bat spoiler for the Shakespeare play Richard III, I guess. Um, but basically, Richard III makes his rise to power as uh, as as king, and essentially then, you know, the the people rise up to essentially dethrone him uh and there's a there's a battle that ensues at the end and it's where the famous you know uh a horse a horse my kingdom for a horse the the you know he basically yeah. he's a he's a hunchback and he gets knocked off his horse in battle and he's trying to basically get away and the idea being this dude who had so much power and had everything and it you know manipulated manipulated his way to the top basically is now left with without something as simple as a horse right that's like the the irony of the play um yeah. or at least that moment in the play but that scene and this it's sorry go ahead that yeah. that scene in looking for richard uh is is a battle scene that's directed by michael mann michael mann because they were shooting heat heat at the time and wow. and pacino was basically like running out of money while making the movie um, I think it's also why people that he cross crosses paths with show up in the movie because, you know, as we mentioned before, Alec Baldwin and Kevin Spacey pop in because of Glengarry Glenn Ross uh, and um, a few others that he was sort of working with in and around at the time. Baldwin has a very great Baldwin moment uh, towards the beginning of the documentary where he's like, oh, the, he's yeah, like, go ahead, we're go. working for donuts on this yeah. project. So they, cause it's they such all, a great he, he basically moment. got all his, he, he was working for $40 a day and all the donuts you can yes, eat that's is, right. the, is the joke. It's like, the, yeah, it is the most oh, like Alec. snarky Baldwin thing. Such but, an Alec. Oh, but the it. structure of the, of the, uh, of the movie is such that, you know, it feels like because Pacino kind of can't hack making a straight adaptation, he goes through the play act by act and sort of explains the play to you, which is now, frankly, the only version of the play I even like I had never read it. I've never seen it performed. Uh, And the only 95 movie. Yeah. The only, the only version I'd seen was the, was the McKellen movie. So that was kind of my only real exposure. There's other adaptations. I think that are kind of, you know, like looser adaptations, obviously like many, you know, 
like many of Shakespeare's plays. But yeah. Richard III is more like a Coriolanus, which we talked about it's, when I we mean, talked about Jared Butler. It's, like it's, in terms of it's cool. It's not like, one of the ones, but it's not like you know Macbeth, or right, Hamlet, right, right. Or King but there's Lear, you know there's the palace intrigue and and all that kind it of is, stuff. It is it is the play. It is the play. You know, what starts is what is it? The winter of our discontent, right? The, Richard III is that also the same. Yes. Right. That's it's the same play that. Yeah. And it is the beginning of the uh, it's the beginning of the quartet, the tetralogy that is that it's Richard III and then it's the three Henry plays. Oh, right. Yeah. The most famous being Henry V, which that's a more well-known Shakespeare play just in terms of cultural. You know, that's the the pretty good Kenneth Branagh adaptation from 89, which kind of put Branagh on the map in America, at least. uh, Henry V, which the movie The King, which is currently on Netflix, is kind of a more gritty, if you want to say, adaptation of Prince Hal and his, you know, he becomes king and his exploits. And then uh, the an amazing movie, which is another potential B-side for Orson Welles, who's kind of his own king of B-sides. He made a movie called Chimes at Midnight, yeah, which he plays Falstaff, who's essentially in different versions, Henry V's drinking buddy, and then he becomes king and kind of leaves Falstaff to the side of the road to some degree. And Chimes of Midnight's a, more about Falstaff and like a big fat Orson Welles plays Falstaff. And it's an amazing, amazing uh, movie, um, which is like one of those, one of many Welles movies that kind of barely got released and then got rediscovered. And now is considered by many to be a masterpiece and is a masterpiece. So yeah, I mean, look, you go down the road with Shakespeare, there's a million crazy different cool things to talk about. Um, and I think the cool thing about looking for Richard, like you're saying, Connor, is it's yeah, I would love to watch or rewatch or I guess watch for the first time looking for Richard and not know a lot about Shakespeare. Because well, that's kind I of think the thing. it's a like good I, intro. Yeah, I think if you if you're someone who like doesn't know Richard the Third and even doesn't know a lot about Shakespeare. It's just a good sort of yeah. instructional like dive into into Shakespeare. You know, they even break down like and this is what you were mentioning before with like the different acting styles. They break down like iambic pentameter and and that those sort of the the rhythms that you spoke about and and whatnot. And um and it's yeah, I don't know, it's it's a I think by and large, a pretty well-constructed documentary insofar as, you know, uh, it's a, it's a first movie and, and I think he manages to really kind of, uh, to wrangle something out of it. And he, I mean, by all accounts did, you know, seek help from other filmmakers and whatnot that he was, had been working with that he sort of presented, he was just shooting and shooting and shooting. And he had like 80 reels of film that he had shot and he was kind of like, what do I, yeah, what do I do with this kind of thing? And, and like I mentioned, you know, he solicits the help of Michael Mann at one point and that kind of thing. Um, what does he do after they, after he realizes they lost McCall, even though he was only having coffee with him half an hour ago? Because that's not in Looking for Richard. No, no I'll just but say there's a to, scene in to, Looking for Richard where where he he goes up to Winona Ryder and he's like, she's got a great ass. And it's really weird. Uh, can I tell you, this is totally tangent, and but we'll move on. Um, I'll say this simply. The 1995, the, sorry, the 1955 Lawrence Olivier adaptation is probably still the most famous Richard III uh, adaptation. Um, I'll say this quickly. In Heat... 
there's a moment towards the end of that movie that nobody ever talks about. It's a great movie. Who would talk about this? But I always think about this. Um, spoilers for Heat if you haven't seen it. Natalie Portman, young Natalie Portman, who is Al Pacino's stepdaughter in the movie, tries to kill herself. Pacino finds her, rushes her to the hospital. She's gonna, she's being saved, and he's with uh, Diana Verona, or Verona, sorry, um, uh, in the waiting room, and they're talking, and they're basically like, okay, we're gonna get divorced. Like this just isn't working out. And it's like kind of a sad scene, but a good scene. And his pager goes off, and he looks at the pager, and he goes, okay. And it is like one of those moments in movies where like that's why the great actors are so great because it's a perfect – it's like Pacino is not Pacino. You know what I mean? Like in that moment, it's a, it's a throwaway moment. His beeper goes off. He looks at it. He knows that he's got to leave, but he doesn't want to leave because there's this tragedy that's happened and da-da-da-da-da. And that moment of him just like sighing and whatever. I mean, I'm telling you, like those are the reasons. You know, you can you can point to the great scenes, but those little moments, like that's that's the real stuff. You know, that's where like the real great performers kind of just have you locked. Cause like when I rewatch that movie and he does that, I'm like, oh man, he's gotta go back out there. Shit. Fuck. Like, you know, you yeah. just you're so like locked in. I'm telling you. Anyway, um, all right. Looking for Richard. Good movie. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think, I think, I mean, it's a, I, you know, I found it, uh, I rented it on YouTube. I think you can rent it on like Amazon and iTunes too. I think it's, it's relatively, yeah, I rented it on, it's uh, relatively available. Um, but, um, his most available, uh, effort, no doubt about it. Yeah, Um, for sure. For sure. And came out this, that movie came out looking for Richard made like a million, million and a half bucks. You know, it, it actually was in theaters for a minute. Um, the next movie we've talked about, it's also Pacino movie. Didn't really come out. Chinese coffee. They made it. Premiered at like like we said uh, around 2000 at film festivals. Tribeca specifically, based on Ira Lewis is play from '92, which I mentioned. Pacino was in the play. He adapted it into the movie. Him and Jerry Orbach. Um, this also, upon rewatch, I liked more than when I watched it many years back. I had not. Um, what I, did you think, Conrad? I I had not seen it, but I when I was when we were prepping to do this. And I was trying to track down where I could find all these things. I found this on YouTube and I kind of scrubbed through it a little bit and immediately, like I watched like, you know, little two minute pieces of it. And immediately I was like, oh, I think I hate this. Right. Like I was like, just like, <laughs> I was just like, oh no. But like when I actually dove in, um, I, I don't, I don't, I don't like love it, but it's definitely, um, it's, I, you know, I don't know about the direction per se, but I do think Pacino's performance is pretty good. And I think um I think they're I think Orbeck's pretty good. Yeah, too. no, I think but I was just gonna say I think their chemistry works pretty well. Like I buy them, I buy them as lifelong friends. Um, or not let, but you know, I, I longtime friends. And um Well, yeah, I kinda one of the things I like about the about the the writing is unless I totally misread it rewatching it. They establish so essentially. I, we kind of said this before. It's two men in an apartment, in an apartment, basically airing out their dirty laundry for each other. Essentially, right? One, yeah, it's, it's is, like a, it's like a two hander chamber movie. Yeah, yeah, one one is a failed writer who's Pacino, Harry Levine, and the other is Jake, who's a like a fashion photographer, kind of. He's like a theater photographer, but like low rent. You know, like he's like he's not, you know, he's you know, th- it, this is not um 
what's your name at Vanity Fair? You know what I mean? Like Leibowitz. this is um yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not Leibowitz. Like he's kind of, you know, doing it for pennies. And they're both essentially, you know, poor old schmucks who haven't had success the way they thought they would. And Pacino's character has written a novel that's based on them and they kind of come to terms together on how they feel about that writing and like what it says about them. And it's pretty interesting in terms of the creative process. Like we talked about, you know, Pacino's, it seems like this constant examination of process. A funny thing about Pacino, similar to De Niro in interviews, because they've been all over the place with the Irishman out. He's cagey about process, like, and a lot of actors are, but I find that interesting in the context of these directed movies because obviously he has a lot of thoughts on it, right? Like, there's always that thing people say, like, the last thing actors want to do is talk about, you know, their acting process. And I, 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 of course, I understand where that comes from, but I do find it interesting because so much of his work as a filmmaker is, is about the acting process. Yeah, the other thing, I mean, that no, I'm really glad you brought that up because one thing I was noticing is how representative their directorial efforts are, you know, are of their style as actors, right? So, like, and and uh, there's a really good um, New York Times piece that was uh, that was written as you know as a part of the the Irishman coming out um, by Dave Itzkoff. Um, oh yeah, we'll link we'll link it, to we'll, that. Yeah, That's we'll a good piece. It. It's a good it's a good piece because it basically charts that you know their sort of unique friendship over the years and how you know they 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 aren't they haven't necessarily been like super close friends but in in their respective careers they've often turned to each other as sort of the only other person that one of them can talk to about certain things which i think is really fascinating um but in that piece um it's cites you know uh particularly both scorsese and actually michael mann talking about working with the two of them and their styles and describes and they both basically describe them in similar ways that that Pacino is very is much more loose, a lot more free form, you know, um, and a lot more just kind of like, let's just sort of do it and kind of see what comes out of it. Right. And when you watch it, looking for Richard in particular uh, and and Wild Salome in particular. But like you said, Dan, also, you know, it comes through in Chinese coffee just because of the nature of the movie, right? Because it is basically a play. Yeah. You are seeing this dude do that. And it, and it makes sense that, that these things would be, uh, you know, be attractive to him as a director as well. They're all very like loose movies. Like they're very loose definitions of movies. I mean, the other two are technically documentaries. Yes, but they are like, you know, they are not like super tightly constructed documentaries. They are very like freeform. Right. right? And, um, and De Niro is this kind of, you know, is, is, is not by the book per se as an actor, but, but certainly more deliberate, um, in, in, in the things that he does. And it just makes sense because, you know, he's only made two movies, both of them feel very deliberate and like just in and of the fact that there are only two of them, right? He's not like trying to churn out directed efforts here and there to try and either prove himself or any anything like that. It's just he's only he's making the movies because he feels he wants to make them. And even the movies themselves are good, you know, relatively tightly constructed pieces of entertainment, right? And um and it's funny to watch something like Chinese coffee 
um, because in comparison to his uh, his other, uh, you know, because I would almost say Salome doesn't count, you know, because it's sort of a movie he made as a byproduct of making Wild Salome. Yeah, uh, there, you could you almost should count that those two movies as, as like one, one movie. as one thing, right? But, Can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. Who who do you like more, De Niro or Pacino? Oh, um, as an actor or director? just just as an actor? I, well, I think De Niro is a better. I mean, look, director. De Niro is a better director. I think that's right? unequivocal. I mean, yeah, as I mean, an actor think... in their earlier careers, I think I no, pre- just, just I, in uh, their earlier careers, I think I prefer Pacino. In their later careers, okay. I prefer De Niro. All right, I think on uh, for me, and it's always kind of been like this on a general level, like on a on a general level, and obviously it's close. I've always preferred Pacino. Interesting, um, but it's like, what are we talking about? You know, well, what they I mean? both, I mean, you know, they both like, fall into that a, thing. They both fall into that thing where they can get, you know, they both get super hammy, right? And um, and I think I think Pacino leverages his ham fistedness to greater effect when he leverages it. Um, I think the and this isn't a spoiler or anything, but the Irishman uses that to really great effect. Like his performance as Jamie Hoffa is really great, and he had oh, cool. and he's perfect for it in in the sense that there are you know he's allowed these bombastic moments that I think you know we've become accustomed to with Al Pacino, but it doesn't it it feels like he's Pacinoing in a good way, you know, like in the way that in the way that you, you want him you, to, yeah, the way that you not unlike heat, I guess, right? You like know, it's very much like heat, like in the one, way that you hire him to do, yeah. Right? Um, and I think, I think when De Niro gets sort of cartoonish like that or over the top like that, it, it never really rings as successful, but like when, like in terms of like quiet, like vulnerable performances, um, like I said, particularly in his later career, I think De Niro is just so great at, at, you know, doing that thing that you and I talk about that we love, which is like carrying weight and, 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 and sadness and just like time on his shoulders without really having to do much um i think he's he's really great at yeah no one one thing thinking about them is i guess an argument you can make for de niro is that you know the comedy career de niro has made uh, you know in his in his later years um you know pacino never that kind of diversity i don't know that pacino ever really captured i guess which that could be kind of a a thread in De Niro's cap, you know, when you think about something like meet the parents or analyze this, or even like dirty grandpa, I mean, you can laugh, but I mean, there's actually some really funny stuff in that movie. Um, so there's that, I suppose, which is kind of an interesting thing with De Niro, that ability to kind of move on that side of the aisle. If you, you know, yeah. And I, I think, um, I don't know. There's a, there is a, and it's not to say that Pacino doesn't have a, a vulnerability to him because I think he, he very much does. It's, it's of a different kind though. Um, and I think Chinese coffee actually, I, the reason I like his performance in it is because it is a more vulnerable performance from like an aging Pacino. Um, especially when you compare it to, you know, the things, you know, the other movies he was making sort of surrounding it. Um, because he's just this frazzled, washed up dude and he's insufferable, but like in in a way that again, you know, the movie knows it. Uh, the the 
the screenplay certainly knows it. I think I do think the screenplay is kind of the king of that movie. You know, I think it's obviously it still relies on their ability as actors to be able to bounce off each other. He and Jerry Orbach. I, I think it I think it probably reads on the page better than it even comes across on screen. Um, yeah. And, and it's funny. The ages are a little weird because the movie is set in 1982 Greenwich Village. And obviously they seem a little too old in, in some respects, but I guess it there's, doesn't really Pacino, matter. There's like, there's like a lot of that. Like there, I was joking with you that like we, he it, says his age. And yeah. It's like, at, at one point he says he's 42 years old in, in, uh, and I didn't know when I was, you had said that before I rewatched it. And in, in the context of the movie, I, I feel like he's meaning that like years before he was 42, but well, you're so right. The time frame it's, it's a- of the movie, cause it's, it, so basically, you know, it's mostly a chamber movie, but it does flash, you know, it, the only time you leave the room are these flashbacks to this prior relationship that Pacino was in for about six years. And, right. you know, when you do the math, like he was born in, in 40, right? <laughs> the movie's a 2000, yeah, you're right. he's a 2000 movie. So he's, let's just say 60, right? Ish, so he's, yeah. He's knocking off, you know, 18 years of yeah, his you're life, right. basically. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And I just kind of, and it's, and it's funny because he, um, in, in Wild Salome, uh, mentions that he's like, he's like, I'm, I'm 48. And you're like, no, you are not. Like, <laughs> which is, we're to, to a point where, and you and I were joking about this, but like, does he know how old he is? Like, just maybe he just, <laughs> maybe he just yeah. doesn't know. Like, I mean, he's an actor, baby. You know yeah, I mean? it's, he's, it's he's so, old he needs to be. It, he just made a movie where he played six different ages. Or no, whatever. that, that, I mean, that's like the interesting thing is like, uh, in the Irishman, there is no, and it's part of the movie's success. I think a little bit is that they don't ever mention age or time specifically. They sort of only give vagaries of a time frame. So, you know, particularly with De Niro, like imagine if, you know, De Niro in Mean Streets was just not even Mean Streets. If De Niro in, say, uh, you know, I don't know, frankly, Bronx Tale, right, was just like a fatter dude who was less in shape. And that feels like De Niro in his earliest scenes in The Irishman. You know, like it's kind of like you're not looking at young Robert De Niro. You're looking at what if old Robert De Niro was young, like kind of. Yeah, thing. that's interesting. Um, that's interesting. And it's it's mo. I mean, you know, it's mostly effective. But but again, the 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 movie uh, that movie is, is vague about those things. It's very much like, you know, Joe Pesci refers to him as kid and you get the sense that it's like, OK, he's probably too old for this part because Joe Pesci's calling him kid. But Joe Pesci is also playing a man who is older than he is. So it kind of flies. Right. Like it, it sort of it sort of right. works. But uh, but anyway, yeah, it's I mean, that I think is is definitely the particularly in Pacino's part when it comes to Chinese coffee and even Salome. It's you know, I, I think that's the the vanity showing through for sure. And one of one of one of um you know the wor- I think the weakest parts of Chinese coffee is when they try to expand from the play. I think in a weird way, had they just kept it in the room, it probably would have been better. I mean, this is a common thing with play adaptations. I've had this conversation with you know many a film person in terms of you know when you adapt a play, like if you, you know Denzel Washington makes Fences, right, and you do what you can, you know, because it's a play is a play and a film is a film, and you want to try to expand it and kind of expand the world a little bit when you're making you know a film. But, you know, I've had friends, we've had friends who've mentioned that, you know, the confines of 
in the adaptation of Fences is tough because it's a long movie. It's a long play. I don't have a problem with it because I think the performances and the way the performances are filmed and like the different lenses they use to convey the space works well. And when the movie leaves, you know, to the backyard or to the factory, you know, or what, you know, wherever it is that um, uh, Troy Maxson works in Fences, it's like for good reason. And I think in Chinese Coffee, the cutaways are weak because they feel like they were kind of shot around the corner and and they only exist just to like, you know, give diversity of scene and location to a movie that's written to be in one place. You know what I mean? It's just, it doesn't feel quite organic in that way. So, I mean, you know, look, it's an interesting movie. I, like I said, I liked it more on a rewatch. I think, you know, the thing that I like the most, and we'll move on after this and let's, there's anything you want to say, Connor? I liked how the Jerry Orbach character essentially tells earlier on in the movie, Al Pacino, you should write more personally. Like, like talk about everybody you love and hate and and don't skimp on, don't skimp on the venom. And essentially Pacino's character does that, and Orbach's character hates what he's done. And feels hurt. Yeah, it's. A, I mean, I it's a really good. It's, it's a, a really it's, good examination. It's a good rendering of friendship and in, in the world of creative arts. Yeah. Because yeah. that, I mean, I've done that myself with stuff that I've made. You know, sure. like you go a little too far, right? And people are are hurt by it. And you know, and I, I've had that experience on you know, in different ways. And I think probably most people who create have had that experience. You know, so um, that's interesting in its own right. And I do wish we had seen Orbach make more movies. I know he was making, you know, he's great in his own right in the law and order, but, um, he does reveal himself to be, I mean, he was a great theater actor. So obviously, uh, he had a, he had a, a well, a well-oiled career, but, um, you know, it is nice if for no other reason to see him kind of in that role as this kind of petty older guy. No, um, and they, and they, I mean, they're, they play off each other. Uh, they play off each other pretty well. I think part of the reason Pacino, does work for the movie even though he's you know because you almost get the sense like i mentioned in that scene where he mentions to his ex-girlfriend like oh i'm 42 years old it's like maybe he's lying to her right because he he also does feel like a dude who is just not is like can't reckon with you know you know still being this like bohemian greenwich village writer and he's you know he's you know more than halfway through his life you know what i mean um and he keeps like half the movies about how he keeps getting um mistaken for he calls it a bag man you know yeah. because he's like has no money and he's like shuffling around with yeah. his laundry and his you know ratty coat and all right so but that's chinese coffee it's um that's chinese it, coffee it's, it, it's not particularly long uh like i said you can find it on, yeah. you can find it on youtube uh you know it's uh it's definitely if you're if you're interested and you want maybe some snappy dialogue it's uh it's worth uh, a watch and I say this, I basically, you know, we have a couple more movies to go. I basically recommend watching all of these movies. I like Connor saying, I mean, Wild Salome is more of a full kind of movie and Salome, the adaptation is kind of, you know, almost like an epilogue of of the footage that they shot um, trying to adapt the play. So, you know, Wild Salome will probably get get you what you need in that department. Yeah. But, um, but... All of these movies are interesting. Um, and this one we're about to talk about is certainly my favorite. And that movie yes. is called The Good Shepherd. 
It's the second and to this moment, uh, more most recent uh, Robert De Niro directed effort. Sort of the reason we're doing this episode, kind of, uh, kind of because outside we just of the existence did, of the Irishman. Yeah, but we did Matt Damon, and I think even on the podcast we mentioned this movie in as much as it's a great Damon B side, and we kind of wish we had talked about it. And then you know we were talking about the Irishman, and Connor was going to go see, it, and we're like, well, fuck it, let's just do. De Niro Pacino's directed movies, one of which is the Good uh, the Good Shepherd. So, came out in 07, or in 06 as actually sorry in 06, uh, total Oscar play. Mm-hmm. Um, came out basically Christmas, uh, over three and a half hours long. Uh, budget 110 million, uh, made just under 100 worldwide. Certainly lost money. Like is I said it before. over three and a half hours long? No, no, two and a half. Sorry, oh, two and a half. Yeah, hours. okay, yeah. Um, so. Cost a lot, didn't make enough, certainly lost money for some people. It is a fictionalized recounting of the, basically the start of the Central Intelligence Agency in America. And the senior main central character is a guy named Edward Wilson, who's an amalgamation uh, character played by Matt Damon. And it basically goes through his life as a, uh, a student at Yale who gets invited to join Skull and Bones, which is the famous, um, the pretty well-known secret society. Founded by Craig T. Nelson. Founded by Craig T. Nelson and attended by his son, Paul Walker, and of course, Josh Jackson. Yeah. Um, directed by alleged horrible person, Rob Cohen. Um, fun fact, Rob Cohen directed Paul Walker in that movie, Diesel and Walker in The Fast and the Furious, and then the next year, Diesel. In triple X. So that was a he just, fun time he found for him. he found his voice. Um but so basically Edward Wilson character gets the invitation to Skull and Bones while he's at Yale. And in his, you know, being introduced into the Skull and Bones society, gets introduced to a bunch of different people and ultimately gets invited to the OSS through a guy named Bill Sullivan, who was played by De Niro. And then, and this, I mean, like I said, this is all kind of based in some truth, right? Of course, because of course the CIA does exist and there is a history there. Um, the clandestine operations that were, you know, used during World War II would become the CIA, right? So the movie is essentially about that evolution. So... You have Matt Damon, you have De Niro in a small, you know, two-scene role. You have, you know, Timothy Hutton's in one scene playing Damon's father. Alec Baldwin plays an FBI agent who kind of is running interference with Damon in certain moments. Michael Gambon has a couple of great scenes as a teacher, professor at Yale, who then reveals himself to be something more. Tammy Blanchard is a fellow student at Yale that Edward Wilson falls in love with, and she's deaf. And I will say... That her performance and that whole part of the movie, that is some of the most underrated stuff in the movie yeah. and like in general. I love that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the reason this movie's um sort of just sneaky great is that you – I think you go into this movie wanting like John le Carre, right? And it – Right. It doesn't necessarily. It's got some good espionage. Like it's got. I mean, it's it, certainly closer to Smiley than it is to Born. Sure. Yes. You know? Of course. Of course. But like, you go in kind of expecting this like period spy thriller, and what you get instead is a the story of like a broken 
man and his broken life and broken family against the backdrop of the creation of the CIA. Right. And it's basically, and I don't want to be reductive with it because I do mean this as a very high compliment. Like De Niro's like, okay, what if the Godfather, but instead of the mob, it's the CIA. And, and, and I'm just going to tell sort of that same story, right? Like a, a young man who gets swept up in it, you know, becomes just a, a cornerstone of the institution and winds up just obliterating both literally and figuratively all of his relationships. <laughs> yeah. And I because mean, I, you know, we, we were texting when, you know, we were texting each other when we were rewatching and, you know, I basically said to you, you know, I read this movie kind of like Edward Wilson is this version of America itself, right? Like the way the movie's written and this idea of, I mean, look, our country is in so many ways, there is a repression inherent in this kind of Protestant, you know, the backbone of these types of societies and institutions that is really portrayed very interestingly in this movie, right? Where it's like you have characters who are closeted gay, like Lee Pace's character, sure. and portrayed in this kind of eh, kind of tough way that you you could argue is offensive to to, to be honest. But but it also feel, yeah, it feels accurate to the thing that it's sort of no. This is my pointing point. out, you know. And this is my point. You have a lot of this idea of stereotype as weapon, where it's like you know uh, the the woman who is deaf is denied, right? Because um, of other obligations and, you know, and, and whatnot. You have, uh, yeah, a character who's dealing with depression, um, who ultimately takes his own life. And there's that element, right? Like the movie does a good job of outlining the rules that we've, that, that people we've never met have decided make being an American okay to some degree and who are the people enforcing the, those rules and like, what do we know about it? You know? And I just like that. I like that idea of using the CIA as the entry point into all, all the sins that we sleep on as Americans. Right. And, and there's like a particular great scene towards the end of the movie with Joe Pesci who, like you mentioned before, plays kind of a, a mobster. And it's probably one of the most conspiratorial parts of the movie where there's this idea that, you know, this is the mobster who maybe the CIA talked to about JFK. You know, like he might he he's maybe the guy who's involved with all that darker stuff that we have never really been able to prove. Bah, 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 right. Yeah. So there's essentially this scene where Pesci's like, these are the guys that scare me. You're the people that make big wars. No, we make sure the wars are small ones, Mr. Palmer. Let me ask you something. We Italians, we got our families and we got the church. The Irish, they have the homeland. The Jews, their tradition. Even the niggas, they got their music. What about you people, Mr. Carlson? What do you have? The United States of America. The rest of you are just visiting. And it's that is what this movie's about. You know, and there's a truth to that that Eric and look, 
there is an academic nature to this movie that I think will turn people off, right? It's very long and there's like, it's very, this is what the movie's about. And it Let feels like, it feels you like you're reading, about. uh, you know, good. It almost feels like a good historical fiction book. Like, do you know what I mean? Like you're, yeah. you're, you're sort of looking at this, these real things through the lens of, you know, sort of a, it's kind of like a devil in the white city type of thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, like a, midnight in the garden of good and evil. Exactly. Like those types of Exactly. Books, yeah. Like a like a like you're you're sort of viewing the this very um like you said, this very sort of academic uh you know, historical context to the creation of the CIA and maybe through the the half-hearted attempts at at maybe writing some like some juicy espionage or something like that. Um and 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 just just to give a little bit of context, Eric Roth wrote an initial screenplay in 1994 um, for Francis Ford Coppola, and he had been trying to adapt uh, the Norman Mailer book *Harlot's Ghost*, which is itself a fictional chronicle of the CIA. Right? That I think that I think Mailer I think got published in 1991. Right? So. That adaptation was never going to go, so it kind of became what is what ultimately became the Good Shepherd. And over the years, it was going to be Coppola, but Coppola apparently, due to lack of, uh, due to the lack of emotion in the script, which feels like a very Coppola reason, left the project. And then like people like Wayne Wang were involved, Philip Kaufman, John Frankenheimer, Frankenheimer right? which I think it, honestly, Frankenheimer would have directed the shit out of this movie. I think. Yeah, I mean, I think if there is a criticism to be lodged against The Good Shepherd, and I like De Niro as a filmmaker, I think there are choices that could have been made in the director's chair and in the editing room, potentially, that would have made it a little bit more engaging. Sure. Um, one thing that's you got to thank Steven Soderbergh that this even got made because he agreed to push uh, filming on the informant so that Damon could make this movie. Just another reason Soderbergh's a I, fucking dope team player. And I, we, because we didn't talk about this movie on the la, on the last episode, I didn't really think about it because I hadn't rewatched it. And I did mention that 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 the informant is probably my favorite Matt Damon performance. I this performance is high up for me. I like forgot he I think is is wonderful in this movie. Um, in I'm sorry, in, in good the informant. In Good Shepherd, yeah, in Good Shepherd, yes, yeah. yes, yes. I I think it's one of Matt Damon's best performances. Yeah, I, I would agree. It's I don't know if it's his best, but like it, it's certainly like top three. Um, I think he he plays it with like just the right amount of like sociopathic sort of coldness with, but then to to your point, uh, the scenes with Tammy Blanchard, you know. He's so happy. When, yeah, he's so happy, and then and then like when the true happiness shines through, and it boils into this. Uh, you know, into his his sort of ultimate blow up with Angelina Jolie, who he's married to, and 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 you know has a has a. I wish a there was more with. Jolie in this movie. I, she's, she's she's great in it too. Um, yeah, I, I there's think, not enough. Yeah, I mean it's a long movie, so it, they make some decisions, obviously. But yeah, and I think that's sort of the problem. Like, and maybe this speaks to Coppola's point on why he passed is that like, you know, there's. I, I I by and large really, really like this movie, but I do think, yeah, if there is sort of something kind of missing, it's that you – I don't know if there's quite enough time taken to really assess like just how sort of damaged – uh, this sort of glossy family life that that Matt Damon is, is required to have in the movie 
actually is right and 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 you know there are arguments and you know again it, it almost feels like that is what Jolie's purpose in the in the movie is right is to just highlight all that right which is sort of thankless but i think she does a lot with it um yeah i mean the movies like i said the movie's best moments are about this idea of you know we were all young once and so was the country right this idea of like you know the choices you make that maybe in the moment you think you can walk away from or, you know, deal with later, sometimes they follow you, right? So, like, especially with uh, Angelina Jolie plays Clover, who is the sister of John Russell, who's played by Gabriel Macht. Um, And she essentially has a tryst with Matt Damon's character and gets pregnant. And it's like the obligation of the pregnancy forces them together which is, of course, symbolic to the nature of Damon getting involved with this clandestine organization and then being married more to that organization and feeling a responsibility to the country. You know, he oversees the Bay of Pigs invasion, which was, you know, arg- arguably the greatest intelligence failure in fail, the greatest intelligence failure in American history, you know, the, the failed Bay of Pigs invasion. So all of it is of a piece and it's, you know, Eric Roth is one of these writers. I love Eric Roth, but he, you know, he wrote Forrest Gump. He wrote Cure's Case, Benjamin Button. He wrote this movie. He's this writer. I mean, he's the guy you get for the movie that's right down the middle, right? Like, you know, like one of my favorite things, I think our, our buddy Jeff Goldsmith interviewed Eric Roth a million years ago for one of his movies, I think maybe for Curious Case, and asked Eric Roth, well, you know, part of this book, it takes place on a ship. Like, so how do you research that? And Eric Roth is like, I got a book at a library about fishing on ships. You know, like yeah. that's Eric Roth. Yeah, Eric yeah, Roth yeah. is like that writer. But, He's but again, like- it's, but again, it's, it's, it's academic to a degree. Um, and yeah. not in a way, not in a way that I found entirely, like I, I am super engaged by this movie. Cause I just think it's oh, all, it's movie. all, yeah. it's all super interesting to me. Uh, but to your Young point earlier, I can totally see why it would turn people off. I think the other interest, you know, the other layer that gets added on is obviously with, with what you were just talking about, sort of the, you know, we were young once and so was the country. I think it also has a lot to do with like. Um, you know, and I, I think a lot of spy movies tend to bring this up as, as, you know, emotional thematic fodder, but, but the idea of like the lies we tell ourselves and, and, and the secrets we keep from ourselves, you know, and not just others. And so Damon's sort of idea of his father played by Hutton very early on in the movie has a lot to do with that. It's a thing that bookends the movie in a really nice, ironic, uh, and tragic way. Um, and what I think is. If, to bring it all back to De Niro, right, uh, in terms of choosing to direct this movie, um, what I think is great about it is it just is like a, like I said before, very deliberate, like, and in and, and, and his choice to kind of make this movie and, uh, and I, and, and not, not to dog on a Bronx tale, but like, you can clearly see his growth. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, literally between two movies, right? And, and clearly things he picked up from just being on other yeah, movies. 13 yeah, 13 years. Right? You know? Yeah. Um, so you can clearly see all that. And um, and I also, you know, you, you have to think too, you know, with with people in their positions, they, they are also afforded the ability to surround themselves with great people who do good work, right? So so it's, it's it, it, all these things feel very much like a collaborative effort. Um. But, um, but yeah, I, I think, uh, I think it's, 
you know, I, I was I was again trying to find something on his thoughts in particular about this movie, and uh, and I couldn't really find much of it. But I did, uh, you know, I I did see a thing where he had mentioned that you know it was hard enough for him to make two movies. He he's like, you know, maybe I'll be happy if I wind up making five, but who knows if I ever make a third kind of thing. Um, yeah. And just cause any, you know, he just talks about how he laments that like, look, it's just, it's a lot of work, you know? And, um, and this is a huge movie. Like we said, I mean, yeah, $110 yeah, it, million dollars for a movie. I mean, like this is, is no, I mean, is no, is not nothing. It's a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's one thing you, in rewatching that I love just a small moment, um, early in the movie, Damon is walking through the building and he comes to a door and he looks to go and he looks up and it says not an exit. And it's a moment that's just nice in terms of kind of, you know, uh, visually foreboding the rest of the movie, right? Oh, that yeah. Idea of and there's, of, I mean, never, there's more than one. That's not the only thing like that in the movie. No, but to your point, those are touches that not that that you might not get in a Bronx tale, right? Like this speaking to the growth of the arts. And it's, um, and it's the kind of thing that, you know, you look at, you compare uh, and, you know, we, you know, we brought him up, uh, brought him up on, uh, on the Damon podcast quite a bit, but it, it bears bringing up here. Like you look at somebody like Eastwood, right. And you have to, um, I, I'm, I just be curious, like if De Niro got started, he's a, he's clearly a very capable director in terms of like putting together something that's like a cohesive story with at least a little bit of something to say in the case of a Bronx tale and, you know, quite a bit to say with something like good shepherd, you have to wonder if he gets started sooner in his career, is he an Eastwood by now? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and it, you know, I, uh, it, or even, or even a baby, you know? Yeah, no, right. Ex exactly. Exactly. And I, I think the difference between, you know, a De Niro and a Pacino as directors is that, you know, it never even scratches the surface in my mind. It never even scratches the surface of a vanity project with either of De Niro's movies. Right. Whereas, as I said before, Pacino's movies are, are vanity projects and not necessarily in, in the negative ways that you think of them, yeah, but, no, but they certainly self, are self-reflecting. Yeah, He's looking inward. Yeah, yeah. And, and, um, and 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 knowingly kind of particularly and I'll use this kind of as a segue of sorts with Wild Salome like yeah. almost feels actively a vanity project in the negative connotation right like and kind almost of, and yeah. almost examining what a vanity project is right and, like, and you know yeah like if while it was happening the person who was being vain was saying I think I'm being vain here. No, and I think there even I think that's kind of what makes there's, Wild Salome There's even like a moment uh, where he's backstage uh, on I believe it's opening night um, yeah. of the play that they're putting on in that movie. This kind of like doomed adaptation yeah. that he like never fully believes in. Yeah, it's pretty it's, interesting. It's very fascinating. And I guess I mean, is there anything else more you want to say on Good Shepherd? No, I think I mean this is a good one to end on. Obviously, you know Wild Salome plus you know the the adaptation adaptation of the play itself. You know Good Shepherd's the best one of the bunch. Um, you certainly seek it out. You know, it was the year that the good, the two good movies got ignored: the Good Shepherd and the Good German. Um, we'll talk about the Good German, I'm sure, one day when we do like Clooney B sides or whatever. But both are interesting movies in their own right. The Good Shepherd, though, I think, in its own small way, is kind of a masterpiece. So um, I would urge people to give it a shot. And hey, if it's not your cup of tea, you know, like we said, there's an academicness to it. That's it's not meant to be snooty to say that. I mean, literally, it's 
like a little up your face, up your nose type in terms of the, the, uh, what they're, you know, the lines themselves. I mean, like the Americans is a little bit more designed for entertainment, I guess is my yeah, point. You yeah, know what I mean? That's like, an interesting and, and comparison. Is, which is a credit to the Americans, you know, I'd, but, um, Anyway, uh, Seek It Out. It's a very, very interesting movie. Um, and then, look, Wild Salma. Yeah, last movie here. Connor kind of introduced it. Um, it's a lot like Looking for Richard. Um, it's Pacino developing an adaptation of the Oscar Wilde play. And that you, if you don't know what Salome is about, essentially Salome, the play, is from the biblical story. Um, it's uh, As I read it, the original version was 1891. Yep. Um and then only a couple – it was translated uh, from French a few years later. Um, so Salome in the Bible is the stepdaughter of King Herod, and King Herod is the king who sends the fucking people to go kill Jesus. Same same character. And um, Salome is his stepdaughter who basically – it's like the play is she fucks shit up. Like she, she requests the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter – Right. So head on a silver platter. That's where that comes from is this play. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what the play is about. It's, it's a weird play. Yeah. Um, it's, I, it hasn't aged in a way that it's, it's remembrances aren't, I mean, it's not like, you know, you would sooner talk about the importance of being earnest or, you know, uh, the picture of Dorian Gray, you know, portrait of Dorian Gray rather. Um, when you're talking about Oscar Wilde, you'd sooner talk about Oscar Wilde himself, frankly. Um, Which is know, what Pacino his, does. His life, right? Like, right. Well, and, it's like looking for Richard. He, in examining Salome, really examines Oscar Wilde, right? Which yeah. he similarly does in, in looking for Richard. But more – Wilde's Salome becomes way more of a look into Oscar Wilde himself, you know. Um, and, and like an, in, and an interesting one, like he – you know, he, he he brings in like Gore Vidal and Tom Stoppard and, you know, so he's he's you know, he's smart about it in that he's bringing people who who have the insight uh, and. Uh, and uh, who's the other one that that pops up a ton? Is it Kirshner? I'll look it up. Tony, Tony keep, Kirshner. Keep talking. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll confirm. Um, but uh, but, you know, he 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 populates the the doc with, you know, just good, good insight on Wilde and his life uh, as sort of a, you know, uh, an up, a, you know, a bit of a, a political upstart, uh, how that led to him going to prison, his, you know, just his general personal life, sexual orientation, how that sort of came into play with all of it. Um, so it's definitely, again, not unlike looking for Richard, if you are sort of only vaguely familiar with Oscar Wilde, um, and, and it's and, a good introduction. It, yeah, it's a really nice sort of beginners. We one, should say we haven't it. we haven't said this. We should say that Salome is played by Jessica Chastain. Yeah, it is uh, technically her first movie. Um, yes, it's the movie like Pacino fell in love with her. Yeah, and wanted to basically make her famous by making these Salome movies, but ironically. By the time these movies came out, she was already, already famous for other stuff. <laughs> yeah, no, right. It was she, you know, it basically this movie, not unlike Looking for Richard, took a few years to make, and so in the process of him even making it, um, you know, she already by the time it came out, I think the official release is 2013. She uh, two years prior to that had already kind of like just smashed onto that scene in 2011 with Tree of Life and The Help and. Uh, uh, take shelter and you know said that was kind of the year of Chastain you know um 
at, at least her kind of you know arriving uh yeah in in a big way but um but yeah he's he's she's she's definitely a you know a muse of sorts to him you can tell in the doc and in a way that's kind of creepy but also thoroughly appropriate to the subject matter um because a, a big part of the play salome is that king herod is enamored by his stepdaughter essentially um and uh and wants her to dance for him yeah it's the play it's she, that, she 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 like learn she understands in this adaptation her power essentially yeah right, you know? right. And, um, exactly and so she and basically uses it to her you know her the, the biblical story some say is sort of the you know the origin of the striptease essentially because he essentially is uh, herod is holding this this banquet for uh is it caesar it's caesar right like caesar comes to visit isn't that the thing like judea is basically a roman province and i don't know if it's caesar but romans come to visit so he holds a banquet for them right and sort of as an excuse to ogle and yes it is it is tony kushner by the way oh, okay yeah thank you yeah. so tom tom stabbard gorvid and tony kushner yeah as a way to basically as an excuse to ogle his stepdaughter in a really you know gross way he sort of demands that she give this striptease essentially at the banquet in front of everybody and um and in the meantime, she had become sort of enamored with his prisoner, who was John the Baptist, and um, played by here by Kevin Anderson, yes. who's a pretty pretty well known actor from the '90s, who has not done much since. But yeah, but um, but yeah, so she had become enamored with John the Baptist, but he kind of obviously because he's a you know he is who he is, basically turned her away. She didn't like that very much, so uh, so. In his sort of uh, his being Herod's in Herod's sort of lustfulness, he's like, Salome, do the dance. And she's like, no, I don't want to do the dance. And he's like, no, no, do the dance. This is also the uh, by at least my in, in my research, uh, one of the origins of or the origin of the like the dance of the seven veils that, you know, yeah, uh, that, yep. that's where this comes from. So but it, it's essentially the origin of the striptease. So. He basically demands that she do a striptease. He says, I'll give you literally anything you ask for. He's like, do the dance first and then whatever you ask for, I am sworn by the gods to give you, right? So she does the dance and then she's like, bring me the head of John the Baptist. Now, Herod doesn't really like this because he's sort of, and again, this is, you know, uh, Pacino's analysis of it. It, it. Herod's sort of enamored with john the baptist enamored by his holiness by his just general you know prophesizing and all that you know and not necessarily enamored in a in a in a romantic way although he kind of alludes to that because he sort of well, also he, ties it into oscar yeah, wilde history plays herod really like he like over sexualizes hair yeah, in a yeah. funny way and in, in kind of an offensive way frankly but um yeah yeah if there's a line, he's, he's on that line. Right. He's, he's right. He's, on he's yeah. dancing on the line. Yeah, for sure. Um, but, uh, but it's, you know, he, he plays him as, uh, you know, just this uh, sort of lecherous old man to a degree. And, um, and he, basically the doc wild Salome is a, you know, a deconstruction of this whole process because he just decides, okay, I'm not going to make, just make, the play Salome, I am going to make a movie 
of Salome, and I'm going to make a doc about making both of them, right? And like I said before, it does feel like him hedging his bets because it feels like he almost knows that he's not going to succeed at doing either of these things. So at the very least, he'll have some sort of like documentation of how it all went down. <laughs> um, and, yeah. and that's sort of how it feels because as it goes on, the the play itself never even materializes as a play. Um yeah, it's essentially it got, it's, it's, it's just a reading, like a live. Yeah, it's reading. an ultimate failure, like we said and, before. And they yeah. they talk about the you know the reviews of it uh, are not kind because you know people just like they expected a performance and they didn't get a performance. Well, and they like buy tickets. Uh, and yeah, like, and like and, they, you know, the tickets by by even Pacino's account in the movie are like extremely expensive. Um, yeah, and like and he has this whole thing where you know in the movie Pacino who is has always been kind of critical of his own fame in that sense of you know cultural. You know, his cultural persona and fighting against that to some degree. You know, not like De Niro as well. Um, they're private people in that way. Um, he rails against the way they're advertising the play because he's basically like, I don't even know if I can do it. And like people are buying tickets and they're saying that like Pacino is back and playing hair. Right. And, you know, he's like kind of mad about it. It's interesting. Yeah. And he he's sort of as he's trying to uh, get all of these things off the ground simultaneously, you know, seemingly cracking a bit under the pressure um and again it's all it it he basically announces a vanity project in the documentary constructs that vanity project uh and and is lamenting it at the same time and like i said um even if it is a vanity project in the negative the you know most negative possible connotation of the term pacino is smart enough to document it for that right and 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 acknowledge it as that and so it just is really this like uh i don't know like a really really fascinating examination of 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 somebody like him just somebody who is you know a storied uh extremely which you know uh highly regarded uh artist right in in, in his craft um and what the you know the kind of uh i think power and attention uh that that sort of uh that that sort of instills uh instills in him um but uh but you get to just see everybody else involved kind of react to it there's a beautiful moment where the two producers one the one who's responsible for producing the show and then the other who's responsible for producing the film that they're making simultaneously are both basically talking with each other about how like you know, oh, well, you know, like Al basically always made it seem to me that the the film was the most important thing. And then, the you know, the theater producers like, well, no, that's not how I see it at all. Like, you know, and they're just that's sort of yeah. the nature of like why this all goes wrong is that is that, you know, everything is, you know, seemingly of equal importance uh, and that, he, you know, he winds up finding himself with like four days left to like shoot a movie. Right. Like shoot the movie version of the play. And it's a. Uh, I don't know. It's just a really, it's a really interesting sort of, uh, it, again, not unlike looking for Richard, um, just an examination of like how Pacino views his craft in that process and what it means for him to be an artist. I think the reason it's a, it's even more interesting is because it's, you know, it's later in his career, right? He is, it, it, at least in looking for Richard, he's still, you know, in a place where he is actor al pacino who you know 
had just won an Oscar, but at the same time, you know, is still working and still doing things and whatever. And, uh, and, you know, by the time you get around to wild Salome and Salome, um, he is, you know, he is legend Al Pacino doing the same exact thing. Right. And sort of the, they're, they're interesting companion pieces in that regard. Cause you, you get to kind of and see the way he reacts in both of those situations. Just for context, I'm, I have my, I reviewed, uh, both of these movies when they came out a few years back and I'll, I, I can link to this, uh, film stage review, uh, in the article, but just for context in terms of timing and location, the staging ultimately was prepped and performed at the Wadsworth Theater in Los Angeles in 2006. So just to give you a sense of the timing, I mean, that's how far away, far how long ago this is all happening. So you're seeing Chastain in certain scenes like young. You know what I mean? Like before anything, like we talked about. So in that way, it's interesting in itself, you know, because it's just... And like you're talking about Estelle Parsons, I think is one of the people you're talking about. She's basically, you know, a pretty well-known uh, theater person in her own right. She's basically saying to Pacino at different points in the movie, Wild Salome, like, why are you doing this? You know what I mean? This, this is too much. <laughs> why Salome? You've done it. You not only did it once, you did it twice. How many productions have you done? Why Salome? Salome is something I'm familiar with, and I have an idea for a movie that uh, intermixes the uh, life of Wilde and the life of the play and the life of me trying to make the play. This is about a, a journey I'm going to take. Listen, that's important for me that you say that because to approach it not as a play, but to an, approach it as an inspiration. That's why I'm doing the movie of it. Because I knew, you know, to approach it just as a play or to approach it just as a movie, no, it doesn't capture what I feel is in that piece. You take care of the theater, I take care of the movie. It's going to look a lot like I don't know what I'm doing because I don't. It's smart enough to know exactly what it's doing and exactly what it is, which is great. And I think to your point before, the reason, you know, I mean, watching Salome on its own, which I don't even know if you can do. I think even if you rent them, like I rented them on YouTube, um, I think you rent them together. Right. Like yeah, you, you can that, only that kind sense. of get them together. But uh, like Salome itself, I don't know, is really even worth your time because so much of it is put into wild Salome. Right. So it's it's you're really kind of getting the whole thing, frankly. And I'll just kind of segue right into Salome itself. But like what I kind of felt watching Salome, especially after watching the doc, was just how like languid of a play it is. Like it's basically a 90 minute play, but it, it, there's a lot of like, like what we described as the plot before, um, with, with, you know, Salome doing the dance, requesting the head of John the Baptist, and then basically getting what she wants and how that plays out. It plays out in like the slowest way possible. Oh, yeah. I feel like it, there are just moments like Brittany and I were watching this together and she was just like, I feel like they're saying the same thing over and over again. And I was like, they, oh, yeah, 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 they kind of are. No, like, mean, it, it does it, take forever to kind of get through all the beats, you know? The play itself is really only interesting. And I don't even know that we need to really talk about, you know, we've already kind of talked about the adaptation that he, that Pacino does. I mean, it's, it's pretty, you know, it's rushed and not great. I mean, you know, Chastain's the reason to watch it. Her performance as Salome is interesting. His performance as Harry is a little problematic, I think. And, 
in some respects, interesting. Kevin Anderson as John the Baptist is fine. I mean, it's a nothing performance because the character is just there to kind of be essentially killed. Um, but uh, the play itself in the world of Oscar Wilde, right? And the Oscar Wilde kind of of it all, you know, it ultimately premiered in, I think, 1896. And, and he was basically in jail, right, for yeah. his different – you know, for his for his proclivities, right? So, I mean, the tragic end of Wilde's life is part and parcel with this play to some degree. So that's it's really most interesting in the context of of the playwright's life, which to what we're saying earlier, Pacino s- seems to kind of be aware of, and 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 watching the adaptation is only more revealing to that truth, which is like the play itself is a bit redundant and a bit you know, overblown. And then, you know, it's one of those biblical stories that as a biblical story among a million other biblical stories in, you know, the thin paper of the Holy Bible, a Bible plays well enough. But when you actually excise it and adapt it, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, this is just this thing that's really pretty straightforward. You yeah. Know, like, and it, there's not a lot else. To and it. there's a moment in, in Wild Salome where I think Gore Vidal, I think it's Gore Vidal that he mentions like, you know, Oscar Wilde, uh, you know, I don't really know why he chose to write this specifically. And granted, that's sort of what I think Pacino wants to examine with the doc as well. Like, you know, why, like just why? And Gore Vidal mentions like, yeah, like, you know, it's, curi- it's not very good. It's cu- right. It's curious to see why he even wrote it and like why he wrote it in French. Like his French isn't very good. Like, it's just like, an, it's interesting. Like, just, yeah, I don't know. It, it's like a curio about a curio. Is basically like what what Wild Salome is, and and of course because of that, what comes out of it is is another curio when you watch Salome, right? You're just this. It's like this just weird thing that that exists that is technically a movie, you know? Yeah, but like I mean, barely, but like barely. doesn't really feel like one. And you know, I don't know how many actual days they devoted to it in their schedule, but it does feel like the four days that they mention. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. It's, uh, I don't know. It's, it's just, it is fascinating. It is definitely fascinating. I, where, where would you, I mean, I guess, where would you place it in your rankings with all these movies? If we're sort of treating them as, as, as one, I guess if I had to rank these five, as we kind of come to the end here, I mean, I would go from one to five, the good shepherd of Bronx tale, right. Being two movies. I, I, I frankly love, um, in my own way. And then I would go, Looking for Richard, Wild Salome slash Salome, and then Chinese Coffee, probably. Yeah, I think I I, I basically agree. I think I would maybe put Chinese Coffee before Ahead. Wild Salome yeah. Salome, but yeah. um, only because I like I think Wild Salome is interesting enough for all, basically all of the Oscar Wilde bits, and obviously some of the insight into, like I said, just the general disposition and and thought process and, and vanity of, of Al Pacino. Um, and it's, it, it is truly fascinating in that regard, but not much else. So, so it does kind of ask yeah. a lot of you in terms of your time, uh, to, to watch and, and get through. But, uh, whereas like, I think looking for Richard is a better documentary about you know, maybe not as interesting a thing, right? Because it's Shakespeare and Shakespeare's well covered and, and that kind of thing. But but it's it's still, uh, you know, again, for the maybe less informed on the subject, 
uh, definitely a great sort of crash course, I think. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think generally, like I said, I think De Niro's just the better director. So even, you know, the three sort of narrative features, uh, with, uh, with, you know, Chinese coffee versus Bronx Tale and Good Shepherd, it's just, you know, Chinese coffee, not unlike Salome feels like barely a movie. Like it feels basically like a play that got filmed in one room and, and then it's sort of the editing of it was an afterthought, you know? Um, and, uh, and I think they all, it all just feels like, you know, kind of these acting experiments essentially. Um, which I, which I think basically like when, you know, when these things came out is sort of how they got criticized essentially. Like we're just watching Pacino just sort of like do these exercises, which I think, um, it seems like a super negative thing. And I guess it is if you're talking about just pure entertainment value, but yeah. if you are someone I think who is, who like enjoys Al Pacino and is fascinated by his general work and you want to kind of just really dive through some extracurriculars on him. Um, I think his directed movies are kind of all worth taking a peek at. Uh, just, yeah, I agree. just as sort of general um, appendices, if you will. This is definitely of all of our episodes we've done so far. This is definitely one of the fullest um, in terms of recommendations, and you know, of our selection. I mean, all all of these are interesting and engaging in their own right. Now, you know, Pacino and De Niro, The Irishman's out now, so they're doing something. Obviously, we want them to do, which is great. Pacino's working with Scorsese for the first time, um, which is really exciting in its own way. And then, you know, Pacino, they both are have stuff happening, right? Pacino. Is going to be, I believe, in the Amazon show Hunters, which is about yeah, the Jordan Peele uh, hunting, produced show, yeah, yeah, Nazi hunting in the seventies, which is pretty cool. And then De Niro's got a bunch of stuff. I feel like he's always working. De Niro's, I think they're just going into pre-production on Killers of the Flower Moon, which is an adaptation by Scorsese of the David Grand uh, nonfiction book. Oh, is he in that? Um, yeah, De Niro and. DiCaprio oh, are that's both nice. attached. I can I so tell you, so it's supposed to be the first, you know, their first collaboration together with Scorsese, and I love that book. I think I've said this before on this podcast. That book is one of my more favorite recent uh, books that I've read. David Grant, uh, writer for the New Yorker, he is an amazing writer. He wrote The Lost City of Z um, as well, and so I'd recommend that highly. Uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. So I'm actually, that's one of the things I'm most excited for of anything getting made. So. Yeah. I mean, and it's, I, I will say, uh, I am sad to report that, that DiCaprio does not even show up in like a tiny little cameo in The Irishman. Not that any of us really expected him to, but I was just hoping that like, you know, when, when the movie was getting made, I was like, maybe he can just get him in for like a day, for like two seconds. And there are, uh, there are, like at least four roles that I was like, just give it to DiCaprio. Now, granted, if it was DiCaprio in those roles, it'd be super distracting and whatever. But yeah. like, but like, even just put him on screen, like in the back, yeah, like get him to, another movie, give him, to, yeah, give him get one him moment movie. as like a bartender yeah. uh, or something. But um, <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully, Killers happens because um, it's a really interesting story. Um, it's kind of in a similar way to The Good Shepherd, like, the, you know, the kind of the dark edges and of America. He, and stuff. DiCaprio was almost uh, the star of The Good Shepherd, actually. Right. He had yeah. to drop out because of The Departed. Yeah, which is just weird, funny. Because I, what yeah. I, what well, I love and is Damon, like, if you read Damon finished filming before DiCaprio, which is how Damon was able to essentially have Soderbergh push the informant. Interesting. And the yeah, I guess that makes yeah. sense because they're basically not in the movie together. Except yeah, for the one, right, right, right. like the one or yeah, two Yeah, because DiCaprio also 
he has all the scene. He's in. He has all the scenes with Nicholson. So I think the way they they shot all the Damon stuff first, basically, and then I think DiCaprio and Nicholson were were second. So yeah. Any any final any final words before we uh, we shuttle off into that good night? Uh, no, I mean I think j- just generally, yeah. All these movies are are worth seeking out. I think in terms of what I'd like to see them do next. Um, like I said, I. I kind of got it with the Irishman, at least, uh, yeah. you know, definitely in terms of Pacino, I will say like, you know, not to talk about the movie too much, but for, for anybody who has been really hankering for them to like try on screen outside of like an HBO production, um, it's there and they both, I think do some of the best work of their careers in it. Um, and it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really, really satisfying and you know in that regard even for a three and a half hour movie it uh it relatively flies by so yeah yeah i would i'll say i would like to see um i'd like to see de niro direct like one more thing you know like if the jump from if the jump from bronx tale to good shepherd is what it is i would love to see uh what what you know tricks he's picked up in the last uh you know what 13 years or so right since since he made that so well, let's hope for that. Maybe we'll get one more. Yeah, I mean, um, he's seventy six, so we'll see. Yeah, yeah, maybe he's he's got time. I mean, there are all these guys. Yeah, they're all they got good health. Yeah, care. I feel, that's what kind of what I'm saying. I feel. I mean, Eastwood's fucking older than the, the Earth, right? Like, I don't know. They're all. He's like ninety. Yeah, they're all they're all hanging on. So so. More. Yeah, we're gonna find out about Richard Jewell's name and the truth, and the so. truth, and the truth, and the truth. Yes, as well. Also, um, but. Uh, but yeah, as you know, uh, vanity is our favorite sin, and uh, if you want to hear more about it, you can uh, you can follow this podcast on uh, at you know on Twitter at tfsb side, um, and then you can follow me at scruffy looking on Twitter. You can see my byline occasionally on the film stage, uh, as well as Dan's, who you just did a couple write ups, right, Dan? I did. Yeah. yeah. So I'm at DJ Mech on Twitter. I just reviewed Last Christmas and Midway, baby. Uh, for the film stage so that's cool um and i have a couple other things hopefully coming up as the holidays get closer so look for different new and different and exciting stuff from both me and connor a bunch of podcasts coming up um a couple of exciting guests as well as we move closer and closer towards 2020 um but until then until we dive into different characters in the world of film we say to you it's the bitches that'll get yous it's the bitches that'll get yous. It's the bitches that'll get yous. Hey, hey, paid out my ass. Treat all my broads like trash. You'll catch a blast if you move too fast. I talk with class. You don't have to ask. Getting everything by flash and cash. Fighting and stealing. Don't kill without feeling. So I win in the casino before they start dealing. All about respect and intellect. Only mess with the women that pick up the check. One chick's brunette, the other was blonde. I heard their father had stocks and bonds. So I fucked him up and left him floating in a pond. Custom made clothes from head to toe. Catch Joe at the fight, sitting in the first row. Everybody follows when I'm ready to go. No need to show off. They already know. I'm a wise guy. I'm a wise guy.
Bitches at the kitchen.